You are tuned to WEHC Emory and WISE FMYs. I'm Leanne Hunter, live in studio and broadcasting from the campus of Emory and Henry, here to welcome you to our local programming. The time is 1 o'clock on Wednesday, February 14th, and that means it is time for another edition of Farm Talk, the show that educates and answers your questions about dealing with the natural world. And if you've got questions, as always, please send them to the host, Phil Blevins, a Virginia Tech Agricultural Extension agent, and his email address is pblevins at vt.edu. You can shoot us a message on Facebook or give us a call at the radio station, 276-944-6933. And now here is the host of the show, Phil Blevins, here to talk to you about what's your topic today, Phil? Okay, my topic today, I think for the next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is talk about honeybees. And it's a pleasure to be with you again today, Leanne. I want to thank WEHC for allowing me to be on the program, and hopefully the information we're providing is of some value to you, and uh, it's good to have you with us today. And so we want to talk, as I said, about honeybees, and the honeybee is certainly an amazing insect. It's uh, it's not known by a lot of people because honeybees have been here as long as we can remember, those of us that are alive, but the honeybee is actually not a native of North America. Uh, it was brought here by the colonists, the settlers from Europe when they came. And so the honeybees that we've had over the years are European honeybees. Uh, we have had some invasion from the south with Africanized honeybees, and we'll talk about that a little bit as we go along. But they certainly are an important insect. And there are several things that are provided to us by them. Most, most people, uh, at least that uh, I come in contact with, when they think about honeybees, honey is the first thing that comes to mind as far as one of the benefits that we have of having this insect <clears throat> and being able to take advantage of it. But there are other things that go along with that. Uh, wax and, and other products uh, are things that we get, those of you that use Burt's Bees products, maybe chapstick or something of that nature, are familiar with uh, with that, as well as candles and other things we get from wax. Uh, some furniture makers use beeswax uh, to polish furniture, and so lots of things we get from them that are products that we can use, honey being one of those, as I mentioned first, that most people think about when they think about honeybees. And honey's been used for centuries. They're actually found, as I understand it, honey in one of the tombs of one of the pharaohs. And so uh, we read about honeybees in the Bible. We read about honeybees back as far as we have history. And so honey was actually used by the Roman soldiers uh, as a means to heal wounds whenever they were wounded in battle because it does have uh, antiseptic properties to it, and it's a pretty amazing substance that these little insects make for us. But by far the most important thing that honeybees do is pollination, and that's why we think of them as being so critical, uh, because they're extremely important in agriculture as far as pollination goes, as well as wild crops. And one of our major nectar flows in this part of the world is tulip poplar in late May, somewhere along that time, and honeybees are one of the, that's one of the main sources of honey when we have a good season for poplar bloom. And so honeybees are not only important for those that are cultivating crops, uh, but they're also important in the wild as well. And when we think about why should we be so excited about honeybees, because they're not native to North America, 
And there are a number of pollinators. There are all kinds of pollinators out there. We have butterflies. We have moths. We have other bees like the bumblebee. Uh, the uh, squash bee actually is a very important solitary bee that we see in pumpkin and squash crops that really do a nice job of pollination. Uh, there are beetles that may be pests that actually pollinate as they're trying to be a pest. There are mammals uh, that are pollinators like bats, uh, some bats in some part of the world that actually pollinate. And then we're all familiar with the hummingbird that flies from flower to flower to gather nectar. And so there's just all kinds of pollinators out there. So why should we even be so excited about honeybees? And the reason is we can manage them. You know, it's hard to manage a group of bats or a group of hummingbirds. We just can't do that. But we can manage honeybees because of their character as a social insect. Uh, They live together in colonies and function as a colony. Uh, Beekeepers are able to keep bees. Uh, We don't talk about keeping any other insect, but we keep bees. And that means that we manage those bees, hopefully, uh, to our benefit and to their benefit as well. Uh, One of the things that uh, we try to teach beekeepers is that bees don't do good things because of us. They do good things in spite of us most of the time, interfering with them and invading their space Uh, whenever we go in to inspect and do things like that. So we try to minimize that invasion as much as possible. But these are really, really old figures. I haven't seen recent figures uh, regarding this, but the value of pollination in the United States is estimated to be 15 to $20 billion annually. And they are responsible for about one out of three bites of food that we eat. And I always ask children when I'm talking to them about honeybees, would you be happy if when you sat down to eat, if somebody took a third of your food away? Uh, And the response is always no, they wouldn't be happy. But, for example, to give you an idea of how important they are in the food that we eat, 100% of the almond crop in the United States is pollinated by honeybees. About 90% of the apples, oranges, uh, cherries, grapefruit, and tangerines are pollinated by honeybees. And then there are other crops that we don't think of as as food crops that are important to us. Cotton, for example, about 80% of it. About 60% of the alfalfa crop and 50% of the soybean crop. So uh, they're very important in that regard. But as I mentioned, they are a social insect. Uh, The colony or the nest, as we would refer to it, uh, functions as a unit in what we would refer to as a caste system. Uh, And the tasks uh, are divided based on the reproductive capacity of the particular bee. Uh, The individuals have specific tasks, and this is based loosely on their age as we think about honeybees. And all the bees are functioning to... Uh, cooperate in the care of the young to raise more bees. Uh, A a really strong colony of bees, of honeybees, in this part of the world in late May, early June, can grow to over 60,000 individuals in the colony. And so everything in that, by and large, is directed by the queen. Uh, We all are familiar with with the term the queen bee, and she is truly the queen. She controls everything in the colony, Uh, by the use of chemical signals called pheromones, and she can control uh, every every activity that's in there. Now, there are some functions within the colony that workers have input on. 
for example, if the queen is aged and she's beginning to fail, then the workers can take over and raise a new queen uh, and supersede her. So it's really, it's one of the most fascinating insects in the world. And we think about other social insects that we would be familiar with in this part of the world. Ants would be one and termites would be one. Uh, but the bees are the ones that we think about as being so beneficial. And they're Three, actually three different individuals in the colony. You have a drone, uh, which is the male bee, and it's actually the fattest bee with the largest eyes in the colony. And drones can't sting. Uh, you could carry a drone around in your pocket, and they just don't have the ability to sting. Uh, the queen bee is the largest bee in the colony. She's a, Usually when she's a mature queen is a really long bee that when you learn to see her, she's really easy to identify because she just stands out. Now, new beekeepers often have trouble finding her initially because she's pretty shy. She tries to stay away from view, uh, but once you get accustomed to it, she's pretty easy to identify. And her sole job is to direct the colony and to lay eggs. And then you have the worker bee, and the worker bees are a female bee, uh, but they've never mated and so they do not have the capacity to uh, produce new worker bees. It's, it's an interesting thing in the bee colony that the queen does. When a virgin queen emerges from a cell after she's been there for two or three days, she'll go out to what are called drone congregating areas, where a number of drones from different colonies come and fly in this area about 20 feet above the ground. And the queens go to those drone congregating areas and actually mate with about 15 or 20 drones there, and the drones die as a result of that, the queen flies back to the colony, and that's where she stays. Uh, she never flies again unless the colony swarms, and she leaves with a swarm. And for the rest of her productive life, uh, she carries enough sperm to be able to fertilize any eggs that she wants from that time forward uh, in her body. And the way it works is the queen uh, has the ability to examine a cell, and she can examine the cell, and if she needs drones and the cell is large enough, she lays an egg and doesn't fertilize it. Uh, if it's a worker cell and it's brood season and the brood uh, population is expanding, then she lays a fertilized egg. Now, that's pretty amazing. That's not the most fascinating thing about a honeybee, but it's pretty amazing that they can do that. And the worker bees are females. Uh, they have undeveloped ovaries, uh, but uh, they're the ones that sting. And so uh, when you ever, if you're ever stung by a honeybee, it was the female that actually did the sting in a, a worker bee. The queen does have the capacity to sting, but she rarely does it. Usually only when she first emerges from a cell, if she's the first out, she goes around and stings all the other queen cells and kills them. And so, but honeybees are like other things, uh, and there are lots of honeybee races. You know, we think about races of people. There are also races of honeybees. The one that was originally brought to North America was Apis mellifera mellifera. And that was what people referred to as the German honeybee. If you or your grandparents, or if you can remember your grandparents, maybe that kept bees talking about German bees, that's the one they were talking about. They were a darker 
honeybee and <clears throat> really fairly aggressive. They were not the, sometimes not the most easy to manage because they're really defensive. Uh, there have been a number of others that have been brought to the state since then. You'll hear people refer to Caucasian bees, which came from the Caucasus, Caucasus area. The Ital- Lagustica, which comes from Italy, you hear people talk about Italian bees. And then Carniolans uh, are another bee that's been brought over from, from Europe or from some of these from uh, West Asia. The one that most people think about that they, they fear is the one that's the Africanized bee, and that's the Apis mellifera scutellata. Not that you're interested in Latin names, but that's the name of it. And they've got a really a terrible reputation because of their aggressive nature. They're big defenders of their nest, and that's why they're so aggressive. And we've seen movies that scare people to death about these bees attacking and killing people. And occasionally you may have a situation like that where you might get thousands of stings uh, if you got near a nest of them. And so there's been a lot of effort to try to keep the spread of them down. And... <clears throat> It's been somewhat successful, but they are established across the southern tier of the United States now, out to California, all the way to Florida. And fortunately, across the years, it seems that there may have been some blending with the bees that were here. And maybe they're not as aggressive as they were at one point, but uh, we still try to keep those out of this part of the world. And we, we work with beekeepers when they need new queens for a colony. We always encourage them not to buy them out of Texas or that part of the world because of the chance of getting Africanized genetics into um, the bee population here. And so it's been a pretty successful effort in that regard. Uh, we're going to take a little break right now, and then we'll come back and talk a little about, about historical beekeeping. The Emory and Henry Theater Department offers professional conservatory-style training embedded in a rigorous small liberal arts school environment. We offer a variety of degrees so you can study what you want. Our small class sizes means personal attention and more opportunities for you on stage and off. Our unique and dynamic association with the Barter Theater, the State Theater of Virginia, means our students get hands-on experience with their professional theater artists throughout their four-year degree. The Emory and Henry Theater Department will open their production of Mary Poppins February 22nd through the 25th inside the McLaughlin Center for the Arts at the Kennedy Ritty Theater. Tickets can be purchased via the E&H Theater homepage. This is WEHC Emory and WISCFMYs, and we are in the middle of Farm Talk with Phil Blevins, who is talking about honeybees. Back to you, Phil. Thank you, Leanne. Uh, Let's look at a little bit at historical beekeeping. Probably one of the most identifiable things, if people see a picture of, is a skep. And that was a straw, uh, somewhat mound-shaped basket-looking thing that people used to keep honeybees in. Uh, People would weave these out of straw, and that's where they kept honeybees. And at the time, what would happen, people would find bee trees, and that's an interesting topic within itself of how people used to find bee trees. And they would uh, catch these or extract these bees, the comb and the queen and the bees, out of a tree and start that nest in a skep, a straw skep. And then they allowed the bees to stay there through the summer. And in some cases, at the end of the season, they killed the bees and took the honey from the bees. Not a very... uh, 
not a very sustainable way, as we use that that word today, but that's how bees were kept at one time. And that's one of the most recognizable things we see. Even honey jars are made to look like skeps at times. But it was interesting how beekeepers would do that. They would go to watering places and find bees as they watered, and they might drop uh, something on their back that would identify that bee. And they would watch the direction that that bee flies, and bees generally fly in a straight line back to the nest. And so they would watch those bees and follow those bees till they found the bee trees. Uh, There's a professor uh, in New York, Dr. Tom Seeley, who actually has a video on bee lining. That's what it's called, and it's pretty fascinating how they've learned to do that. Uh, and so that was one of the original ways that bees were kept in this part of the world. It's, in other parts of the world, it's really some fascinating things. In the Ural Mountains, for example, uh, the beekeepers there, at least some of them, don't keep bees in hives. They actually have bee trees that they have identified. And uh, beekeeping is not a non-exercise type pursuit. It takes some strength and some effort to handle things. And actually, uh, you can find pictures of those beekeepers there, and they are up in a tree tied in with ropes, actually uh, working the bees that are in the tree. And they collect honey that way, and they have their bee trees identified so that everyone knows whose bees they are that they're keeping. One of the most fascinating places is is in the Himalaya Mountains. Uh, There is a honeybee there called Apis dorsata. It's the largest honeybee in the world. And those bees actually build combs under the cliffs in the Himalayan mountains. And if you want to see something fascinating, go on YouTube or some site and see those Himalayan beekeepers collecting honey from these Apis dorsata honeybees. And they're hanging by rope ladders way up in the air off of these cliffs, and they actually have sticks with knives on them. And someone's holding a basket down, and they actually cut the comb and let it fall into these baskets off of these cliffs. And it's uh, you can see pictures of them, and they look like they're 100 feet in the air hanging on a rope ladder uh, collecting honey from these bees with thousands of bees flying around them ill because they're doing that. And many of them don't have a whole lot of protective equipment on. They're probably barely collecting honey from the bees. And so it's just different everywhere you go in the world. Now, we keep bees today in a hive that's called the Langstroth hive. And the Langstroth hive was developed by Lorenzo Langstroth in Pennsylvania uh, back in the 1800s. And he determined what was called bee space. And bee space is about three-sixteenths of an inch or so. And if you you don't give bees any more space than that, they won't fill it up with comb. And so he devised a hive that honored that space where you could have removable frames in it that would be have space between them somewhere in that neighborhood. And the bees would build comb on those frames. And then you could take those frames in and out, inspect the bees, collect honey, whatever the case might be. And it gave you a box that you could that you could keep the colony alive in. You weren't killing the colony at the end of the year or anything like that. You were keeping those bees hopefully from year to year and allowing them to survive in that and allowing you 
to manage that and give you this at the same time the opportunity and the ability to manipulate the bees to do some of the things that you wanted to do. And that's the one that you see everywhere today. Uh, if you're driving along and you see uh, beehives setting out in someone's yard or in the field, that's the Lorenzo's, uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, the Langstroth hive. There's a uh, uh, some people today keep bees in top bar hives, which are really a different type of hive and uh, look really different than the Langstroth hive. And so we have beekeepers <clears throat> uh, in the United States today that that's all they do. And so they have these Langstroth hives and they move thousands of colonies of hives of bees from place to place. They may start in California pollinating the almond groves and end up in Florida pollinating citrus and then move up the East Coast as crops bloom the further north you go, and they're moving bees around all the time. And so they they spend their year in the growing season moving honeybees from place to place to pollinate things. And that's... <clears throat> That helps provide our food, but it also it also presents a challenge as far as the spread of diseases and parasites and things like that as you move bees all the way around the country. And these and so one of the issues uh, today, and we'll talk about it a little bit later on. We probably won't get to it today, but <clears throat> one of the issues that that presents is. Uh, we have to be on top of our management uh, to keep parasites, particularly the varroa mite, under control, as well as other things that might spread around as honeybees are moved from place to place. Now, one of the most <clears throat> fearful things for most people about the honeybee is the sting. And uh, if you've ever been stung by a honeybee, you know that they leave the sting or stinger, if you will, behind. And uh, that's just the way they're designed to do that. And one of the things to remember is when they leave that behind, they leave on that sting, there are muscles still on it that, that are still contracting, and there's also a sack of venom on it. And that's where we get the burning and the stinging reaction and actually the itching that takes place later on because of that. But a honeybee sting is actually a two-part mechanism. If you could see one greatly magnified, one part of it looks like a fish spear, kind of, an old fish spear. It's got barbs on it so that when it sticks in the skin, it holds, and they can pull it out. And those muscles on the end, it, it, as I said, it's a two-part mechanism, and so those muscles on it cause it to move back and forth. And as the <coughs> barb part is forced down, it doesn't pull back. And so for some time, it continues to go into the skin. And it continues to express that venom into your skin. And so most people, at least, uh, after they get through yelling when they've been stung, is they try to pinch that out and pull it out. And that's probably not the best idea because if you pinch that, if you could envision the honeybee sting as being like a hypodermic needle, and the sack of venom on it being the uh, well that your medicine would be in, and you pinch that sack of venom, you just pressed it all into your skin, which makes the reaction worse. And so the ideal thing to do is take your fingernail and scratch it out as soon as you get stung, or if you're a beekeeper, take your hive tool and scratch it out, and hopefully minimize the reaction you have to it. And depending on who you are, the reactions are different. Uh, some people are highly allergic to any sting from an insect, and they need to be very careful. 
if they're going to be beekeepers, they probably ought to think about having an EpiPen with them so that if they had a severe reaction, they could actually uh, inject that and uh, hopefully not have any bad problems from it. And then some people, it doesn't bother. It may burn, but they never they never have much of a reaction to it. I know, I know people that wear very little when they keep bees. Uh, I really don't mind the getting stung so bad as I do the itching that takes place later, so I wear the gloves and the veil and everything most of the time when I'm doing it. But there are advantages if you don't have to wear all that. Now, <clears throat> in our part of the world this time of the year, uh, our bees are beginning to really think about expanding the brood nest. And so the queen is beginning to lay. Uh, one of the first things that we have in this part of the world that will bloom is red maple. And so the honeybees are going to be going to the red maple trees gathering pollen. And when they begin to gather pollen and nectar in a natural situation, then that's a signal to the queen that I need to start really laying. And so the brood or the baby bees uh, population in the nest begins to expand. Uh, at the same time, the older bees uh, that have been there all winter are beginning, some of those are beginning to die out as they go out and forage. And so you have this contracting population of adult bees and an expanding population of, of brood bees. And then along about March, things begin to go the other way. Uh, the brood continues to expand. The adult population begins to grow. And so... Uh, that's what we're trying to accomplish as beekeepers is to get that to happen so that when our major nectar flows happen in this part of the world that we have enough worker bees uh, to be able to gather as much nectar as possible. And so those major flows for us are in uh, beginning April with dandelion is the start of one of those that they work. But really when you get into May, and poplar and locust are blooming. That's one of the huge nectar flows in this part of the world. And so we want to have our maximum adult population at that time. So that's kind of what we're working for. And so <clears throat> we'll visit again next week uh, about honeybees. And hopefully if you have questions, please feel free to let me know or to call into the program. And we'll answer those questions about this tremendously important and fascinating insect. So Leanne, thank you for having me on today, and thank WEHC for allowing me to do this. Thank you for being here, Phil. I'm really excited for this series. Uh, they're really fascinating um, insects and give us so much. If people want to learn more besides just tuning into this program, are there classes or anything locally? Yes, there are. Our Highlands Beekeepers Association, which is really an outstanding group of people interested in furthering the cause, uh, they have monthly meetings the first Monday of each month at the Higher Education Center in Abingdon. There's the Highlands Beekeepers Association has a meeting at 630. And most of those meetings are geared toward education. Plus, in January of each year, we begin a beginner beekeeper class. We just finished one. And uh, we uh, it goes through the basics that you need to be a beekeeper. And so if you're interested in that, be watching for that next January. And then any other questions you have, feel free to give me a call. You have been listening to Farm Talk with Phil Blevins, and you can catch all the episodes of this show by subscribing to the podcast. And we hope you'll tune in next Wednesday at 1 p.m. on The Voice of Southwest Virginia, 
as this series continues. And in the meantime, email fill questions at pblevins at vt.edu.